halfway across the lake, you realise your body is made of food, and what's breathing far beneath you is trying out some names. Your father is a forest pushing blood through you, like sap sweetening in the trunks, frogs bulbed in the ponds, knotted with a simple pulse, calling you home. Welcome to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, a podcast where we tempt innocent sailors to a watery doom with a heartfelt rendition of At the Copacabana. We've assembled some of the finest poets the UK has to offer and asked them to rewrite the myths, legends and fairy stories they want to pass down the generations. Stories they want to preserve for whatever future comes next. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, and I'm delighted to welcome our two guests today, Joe Dunthorne and Luke Palmer. Hello, both. Hello. Hello. Joe Dunthorne was born and brought up in Swansea. His debut novel, Submarine, was translated into 20 languages and was made into an award-winning film. His second novel, Wild Abandon, won the Encore Award in 2012, and his latest is The Adulterants. His first collection of poems, O Positive, was published by Faber and Faber in 2019, and he lives in London. Luke Palmer's debut poetry pamphlet, Spring in the Hospital, won the Prol Pamphlet Contest in 2018, and his second pamphlet, In All My Books, My Father Dies, was released in March by the Red Ceilings Press. He runs the Hours Writers Workshop in Bristol, and his first novel, Grow, will be published in 2021 in July by Firefly Press. He lives and works in Wiltshire with his young family, and you can find him at lukepalmerwriting.com. Uh, Luke, why don't you tell us what story you've chosen to rewrite? I chose um, Hansel and Gretel, the Grimm's fairy tale. I'm sure many listeners will be more than familiar with the basic plot points of Hansel and Gretel, but for anyone who might need their memory refreshing, could you give us a little rundown? It's about uh, a boy and a girl, Hansel and Gretel, who are abandoned by their parents, um, left to fend for themselves in the woods. Um, and in the original, they they find their way to a witch's cottage who um, uh, fattens up Hansel on gingerbread and sweets um, and kind of enslaves Gretel as domestic servant uh, until they eventually escape through their kind of childish wiles, um, stumble back through the woods um, and find their way back to their, uh, their father's cottage where he welcomes them with open arms because he never really wanted to get rid of them in the first place. And it was all the wicked stepmother all along. Uh, a classic of the genre. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Take it away. Hansel. A father is a god who won't feed you, who lolls in bed on heat, his new wife stewing in him, bindweed in his knotty body, his bark coarse and pitted as your unmother pulls at your sister's hair, tells you what all boys are like. A father is a god of stale bread clutched to your chest as you follow him into the woods. He makes you a fire, a lazy red mouth, says to keep it fed while he works. A father speaks like a steady axe. He speaks to you long after he has left his axe tied to a branch spinning in the wind. He echoes long after you find his aeolian drum, claw at it break it with aching fingernails for your father is a god in the wind you creep back to his fire your sister choking on bread and tears there is smoke in your eyes and a whole forest to burn while you wait for him 
Years later, you will remember as you clear the breakfast dishes, as the sink fills and you tip cereal to the bin. Upstairs, your daughters will play, cry from your bed, squealing in duvets, buried in pillows. You will brave the knives in the draining rack and remember that you could be a god like this. Your god will hang over you in the playroom as you scoop up blocks, lay dolls in their crib, stack books on their shelves. Your god is a father who whispers. A father is a forest, row on row of trees, always even and uniform and dark. You try to cross a father, trip on his creeping knuckles, fall to his knees. A net of branches forms a father so dense you forget the real sky as a father pours at your sister's hair. Dark water is a father falling through the canopy. A father drips down your neck. In places, a father lies so thick you must wade through up to your waist. When you wake, lost in a father, you forget the way you came and set off again, still hungry, always hungry. There is sap on your hands and its smell, sharp and fleeting like smoke. Your clothes cling to you, dark and cold, as you set off again, even deeper as the lightless water drips and keeps dripping in the empty father. You will remember this years later. As you get your daughters ready, roll thick tights up their legs, lift them by the waist. You will remember this as you plump their arms into vests, dresses, jumpers, as you pack their lunchboxes as they pin each other's hair in the way you showed them, the sharp clasp at the nape of their necks. The father outside your window taps his nails on the glass, creaks in the wind. At the centre of the forest, a father rests you in his generous house. His arms swing open and his sky rises up, up, up until it winks and dances in green light, a great lime leaf firmament and roof of young beech. It stretches under the earth. A father's walls are fruiting with oysters, parasols spring like footstools, chanterelles in fountains across the floor. A father frames his windows with sorrel and mustard, goat's beard and brooklime and smock. A father's kitchen is a stream bed of crayfish. You grow inside this father, fill to your edges, brim to your blistering waistband. But there's a tug, your body's cage tightening. The air turns turgid. You sleep beside your rounding sister, sweating dreams of your father who led you to the woods, of the woman who led your father up your father's stairs. Your father is a forest pushing blood through you, like sap sweetening in the trunks, frogs bulbed in the ponds, knotted with a simple pulse, calling you home. As you, years later, wring your daughter's socks, churn them in hot water, your hands chafing in the cold air, you will remember that walk home. You will remember as you watch socks dancing lines across your father's garden, where the swing set you made holds the forest back. Your father waited in his woodsman's house that dawn, his axe like a limb in the porch post. Your father met you at his door, glowing, an earthy scent trailed him. Surprise in your father's face, as if he'd never met you. 
You plumb from the woods and your sister bittered, tree scratched, swollen out of herself with bitterness as you took in your father, his open shirt. Inside the smell was stronger among the clothes, gauze, lace, such small pieces. Your stepmother dripped down the stairs, uncoiled on the couch. Gretel left, tends bars now in some logging town, but you stayed, snared by how it might taste, might coat the tongue like gingerbread. Your father steered you to the forest then, said you'd earned your axe, would help you pray with it. And now, this years later morning, your father at the tree line, his blade head caught in the sun, you load the wagon's ropes, pulleys, oil and whetstone and bread. Your daughters run ahead, laughing, run through him like dust motes, in and out of him as he walks, as if he wasn't there, as if he was just the forest. They run in and out of his mouth. Thank you for that, that was beautiful. So what was it that drew you to this story in particular, which is such a staple of a lot of Anglophone childhoods? Um, I think I think the thing about fairy tales or any kind of myth is 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 that they're kind of such big open texts, aren't they? And that you can kind of you find a lot in them every time you get back to it. And as a as a kind of as a relatively new father, my my, my daughters are um uh, kind of uh, one's just about to turn six, the other's not far off three. I kind of I, I kept re-looking at these these roles of fathers in all of these stories, and I mean mothers in in fairy tales are kind of quite well documented, particularly the you know the stepmother um, kind of role. Um, but I thought this this story really kind of spoke to that idea of fatherhood, and what I found interesting was just the way that. In some versions of the story, the father's kind of quite active in deciding to get rid of the kids. In the other stories, it's sex, basically. That means he kind of he trades in his kids for sex. Like he kind of he's got this new wife. But what he would rather do rather than look after his children is is kind of hang out at home with her. And that kind of to me was was like really darkly appalling. <laughs> um, and so I think I yeah, I kind of wanted to to explore that. And particularly, you know, like I said, as a, as a father, um, this idea of fatherhood is maybe this kind of monolithic pressure, I suppose, that this is what a father is. This is what a father does. I kind of wanted to see how far I could push that and still end up with a character who does look after his children at the end. Um, and, and kind of how you break that kind of cycle, I suppose, of, of kind of, you know, fatherhood as this totemic, toxic kind of potentially nasty nasty thing i mm. think <laughs> there's a lot of imagery of like hunger and starvation and feeding mm. in this work and it really brings out for me the fact that according to some people hansel and gretel was written or originally came about against the context of real life examples where people would either abandon or sell their kids because they didn't mm. have enough to feed them that was that something that kind of was live for you while you were writing what kind of most grabbed me about that was the this kind of where feeding is a kind of substitute for love really in in the the, the idea of of kind of nurturing and the idea of, of affection is is kind of uh replaced by this ability to to feed to nourish 
Um, and in the, I guess, in the original, the kind of the the absolute flip side of that is the witch, right? Who who has got like endless capability to feed these children, but at the same time, she doesn't. You know, she just wants to eat them. That that kind of idea of you know, you 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 feed something, you fatten it up in order to kind of to consume it. Um, and so yeah, that that kind of idea of of the the parent that eats its children versus the the, the kind of the parent that is. Um, is kind of able to, uh, to I don't know, to let the child go in a way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the context wasn't such a kind of um, a force for me. Um, I guess as the as just these, these big metaphorical, mm. you know, suggestions about parenthood. I guess. So I'd I'd love to ask both of you actually. Like, how has this story changed for you as it's kind of travelled with you from childhood into adulthood? Um. I think I think for me, I always wanted to be Hansel. Like first hearing this, like I was like, yeah, I'd I'd be kind of I'd be awesome in the woods. Like I kind of I'd be amazing. I'd be some kind of Ray Mears type <laughs> of character, um, and and I'd be the one that kind of you know left betrayal of breadcrumbs and and all that kind of stuff. But then yeah, like I said, the more the more kind of I guess the older I get, the different angles that you come at these things from. Um, and it's very much a story about, you know, how not to parent nowadays, I think, for me, at least. How about yourself, Joe? Yeah, because it can read as a kind of uh, like Home Alone style romp, can't it? From the kid's perspective, it's like, yeah. you know, I guess it's not Home Alone because you're out in the, in the forest. But, you know, the, the, they're out on their own and they, they do an amazing job of kind of tricking the witch, shoving her in the oven. And that's all. And that's the kind of surface that mm. y- you take at least as a kid that's what I took from the story and now predictably as an adult and probably as a parent especially it is that you know the 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 real oppression and the claustrophobia is coming from the fact that the kids can um, be having this adventure almost without noticing that the real horror is at home yeah the the witch is not the baddie yeah Um, yeah yeah Definitely. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a real trope, isn't there, in kind of in, in writing for children that somehow you've got to get rid of the parents and and kind of get the kids into a place where they can they can go off and have these adventures. But, yeah, the kind of as a parent, you're like, no, no, that's that's awful. Don't let's kind of what would you know, that's that's not a, it's not a good idea. Don't go into the woods, kids. No, that's right. And instead of the the woods being this horrifying, threatening place, you've kind of reversed it and instead the homestead the domestic place that should be this safe loving sphere is imbued with a sense of threat almost and I love the way you sort of played with the the blank texts the blank spaces the what has been unsaid in the fairy story um I actually love to go to Joe right about now so what myth have you chosen to rewrite for us well, I have chosen, I guess, a collection of myths um, that are all about things that live in water and will kill you. is is the broad category. Um, it started with a with a Japanese myth called a, a kappa, which is a kind of frog being who lives in water, and he will eat your soul from your anus, and he is attracted by cucumbers and he has a bowl on his head full of water and his kind of one weakness is that he's incredibly polite um and so if you are faced with a kappa the thing to do is to bow very deeply (laughs) and because the kappa is so polite it will bow in return 
and the water in the bowl on its head will fall out and it will lose all its power. And um, then if you put the water back into the bowl, it will be your servant for the rest of your life. Anyway, it's an amazing myth. <laughs> I, I remember coming across it and, and loving it. And then I, when I was thinking about what to write for this poem, I was reading up on it. And it turns out that every culture, more or less every culture, has its own version of this this myth. So um, in Wales, there's a thing called the Keppel Door, which is a water horse. It lives in mountain pools and waterfalls and kills lone travellers. Um, in Scotland, obviously, that there's the Loch Ness Monster, which is a version of the Kelpie myth, which is a similar sort of thing, kind of water horse, water creature that kills people and there's other ones there's the vodnik which is the name of my poem and that is from czech slovenian slovak and russian mythology it's a male water spirit kind of again frog-like green beard long hair covered in algae and muck and will kill you anyway <laughs> the reason i found it really interesting it's, it's, I guess it works on two levels to me that, that like there is a, a practical reason these myths exist. Water is dangerous. The idea was that I guess we're coming back to parenthood again here, that like parents needed a way to warn their kids away from bodies of water. And so myths were invented in order to make bodies of water fearsome. And so on the one hand, it's like this imaginative creation and it doesn't exist at all. But on the other hand, water is dangerous and people do die and drown and I, I guess I'm interested in that balance between uh, uh, fears that are purely imaginary and creative as balanced to fears that are totally rational um, and I think these these myths co combine that like you should be scared of water but not because a toad-like creature lives in it <laughs> and that brought me to Jaws the film Jaws, which seems to me like the ultimate and modern updating of this of this kind of myth. And in the film Jaws, as I'm sure you recall, like the thing that everyone loved or the critics loved about the film is that you hardly ever see the shark. And that turned out to be a, a kind of uh, accident due to the fact that the animatronic, like $3 million worth of animatronic shark failed on the day one of 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 principal photography and so spielberg was like okay we're just oh, gonna no. we're just gonna show the water and do scary music and everyone will just have to imagine a shark because that's even more scary than an actual shark um so this idea of like we all just project the shark into the the space beneath the water even though we can't see it seemed like the kind of updated version of these water horrors vodnik one. In the only pub that found us convincing, my best friend and I would hide in the corner booth, working hard to enjoy these huge yellow drinks in which strings of fizz burst like something drowning. A drunk played the theme from Jaws on the stand-up piano's bottom octave of teeth while the landlord stuffed a rag down the throat of a pint glass. We liked feeling swallowed, entering that strange, warm place where memories aren't made. And halfway home, we lay flat in the road, doing backstroke and singing. Dun -dun, dun -dun, dun -dun. 
as headlights carved the darkness. At least that's how my best friend described it. The blip on the radar, the drop of blood in a public pool, the sweet sour tang of blackthorn on our breath. But I don't remember any of that, so I guess I wasn't scared. And if I wasn't scared, then how could I get hurt? 2. It looks like you've recently been involved in an accident that wasn't your fault, involving an opaque body of water, is that right? And you never received compensation, is that right? And the creature responsible had skin the texture of a waterproof banknote, is that right? And when it held you under, the bubbles that poured from your lips looked beautiful as they rose, a chandelier in a sprung-floored ballroom, and you were led in an old-timey dance, probably a tarantella or a skip-jive, is that right? And you did not know this meant you were married and would have to lie together forever in the lake bed. And you were happy for a while, you concede, but now your mattress soft as it is, groans with those that have been mulched before you, and you fear that one day soon you shall join them, forced to listen to your replacement, some wild swimmer, fabulous lungs, gasping and writhing, their exhaled soul expanding as it lifts, before they get hitched in the same poorly lit cathedral. If any of the above applies to you, press 1 and an advisor will be with you shortly. Apologies for the bad line. It will sound like you're underwater. 3. Halfway across the lake, you realise your body is made of food and what's breathing far beneath you is trying out some names. Kelpie, Selkie, Neck. Seeing what fits, Nix, Kappa, Siakoi, which makes you flinch, Kefeldur, Vodjanoi, Vodnik, that's it. Waves spread from your panic, rings on a dartboard widening. Rising through the darkness, it takes its final shape, the negative space in its gullet, bespoke to your measurements, the booth that knows you best. And now it waits inside this blown open moment, letting you luxuriate in the milliseconds, how your fear flares the world into sudden detail, every hair on your forearm declaring its unique angle of repose, every standard tree demanding a simile, each cloud its lyric essay. We are never more alive than when expecting not to be. Imagine how long your life would feel if you could be forever tracked through dim waters by something newly named while you cry out for somebody, anyone. Hypnotizing, thank you. <laughs> I'm so curious as to why the Vodnik in particular was the one that grabbed you from all this canon of water dwelling monsters. Yes, well, I like the sound of it to be totally uh basic about it. <laughs> I guess I was just 
playing with 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 the rhythm and 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 sound of all those words and i, I just love the way vodnik sound spiky and gloopy and um frightening there's there's beautiful pictures of the vodnik if you if you google it a kind of oh i guess it's like jabba the hut is what the vodnik looks like according to the to the pictures i've seen anyway a kind of giant flobby <laughs> frogman um and yeah it was just very striking could you tell me more about the sort of marital sexual aspects of the myth that you draw out, I guess, in the middle passage? Well, that was interesting. That section arose exclusively from the workshop we did when we were working on these poems. And we had ideas for um, formal approaches to writing this poem. And we talked about, I guess, different official texts that we might repurpose like a census or a uh, an exam or even an email anyway so 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 this came out from for some reason my number is obviously on lots of these lists so i get lots of calls automated calls saying it looks like you've recently been recently been involved in a and so that's how the formal element came about how it ended up being about marriage and um being drowned by your your legal partner i don't know i i i i'm i'm the last person to be able to tell you what my poem's about but yes it just it just came out like that it's probably best that i don't dig too deep into why that's what it ended up being it's something to be addressed in a professional therapeutic context perhaps <laughs> exactly thank you <laughs> you're welcome and i'm i'm so struck by uh, in both of your poems whether it's in the deep dark forests typical of many fairy tales or in the sort of depths of a lake or a river or a sea there is this sense of what we create from unknown spaces of fear and uh, yeah I just wonder what your take is on that yeah I think um just to kind of to go back over that 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 part of Joe's poem I love that as well the kind of the marriage kind of uh session that part two and I think what the kind of Joe's piece really does well is is it pulls really brilliantly between the fear of those unknown spaces and a kind of desire there's like a, a willingness to kind of to jump in. Like there's, you know, like we we stare into the void, you know, to feel absolutely terrified, but also because I don't know that part of us wants to wants wants it. And and I think that kind of that fascination with the dark and the unknown is is definitely that. Um, it, it's got that tension in it. There's fear there, but there's also a kind of maybe something something we want. Mm. It 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 came through in your. I mean, there's lots of uh, big. Fr- Freudian vibes coming through in in both these poems but um I got a lot of that in yours you know it I guess is it it's called the death drive I'm gonna I'm out of my depth on, on Freud here but you know that I completely agree with that sense that there's a part of this fear which we need or, or we love to indulge in and I guess that's sharks are a good uh, good template for that because obviously the chances of being killed by a shark are tiny you're much more likely to be killed by an ant or 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 by your own kitchen knife or whatever but the the shark takes up a huge disproportionate part of the kind of uh, fear space um (laughs) in humans and uh, and part of that is is we really enjoy it like we would just love to kind of in in the same way that horror movies work you know there's pleasure in 
exploring that that terror. Mm, what is it? I think it's is it feeding the rat? Some people call it those people that kind of do that like free climbing up cranes or kind of go urban exploring and stuff. I think they refer to it as feeding the rat. That kind of like primal lizard brain that yeah gets a lot gets a kick out of that kind of that yes. kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> this is tangential, but I once read that there's this thing called Fermi's paradox, which is the idea of like, okay, if there's an infinite universe, there must be infinite habitable planets. Therefore, extraterrestrial life must exist. Therefore, why haven't we heard from it? And um, one of the solutions proposed is that intelligent life has a tendency towards doing very stupid things and destroying itself which is so kind of what this conversation has like brought up from like oh yeah of course we wouldn't need to invent frogmen with bowls on their head if we didn't at on some level all have the instinct to jump into the big dark lake mm. <laughs> yeah it's like a kind of like darwin awards for myth isn't it i guess it's that you know the infinite infinite intellect goes on Yes, is spent is spent imagining every scale on the back of the frogman. Exactly. Well, I would love to talk to you guys infinitely about frogmen and extraterrestrial lives, but sadly, I think we're probably going to have to leave it there. So, thank you so much to our guests, Joe Dunthorne and Luke Palmer. Thank you for spinning us your stories this week to the bottom of lakes and into the depths of the forest. You have been listening to Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, and I've been your host, Eleanor Penny. This has been Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. Our project producer is Tom McAndrew, and our podcast producer is Maya Bosworth. This project is funded by Arts Council England and supported by the good folks at Spread the Word. We have a book out also entitled Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. It's illustrated by the artist Inquisitive and published by Studio Press. To get your copy, you can go to our website, endoftheworldpodcast.com. There you can also explore all our previous episodes and find out more about our writers and their stories. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Goodbye World Pod.